It's day eight of Heart Dive 365. I'm your Bible study friend, Kanoi. Welcome to the Heart Dive Podcast. We begin week number two of reading and studying through the Bible in 365. I am so glad that you guys have returned. If you have, if you're back for more, if you love the Word of God and you love what we're doing here and studying it, could you please hit that like button for us? That partners with us and helps to get these videos out across the world, getting more people involved, getting more people who love and are passionate about God's Word and ultimately strengthening their relationship with Christ. Also, if you could please subscribe to the channel or to our podcast and make sure you have the notification bell on so that you know when the videos come out. And if a video doesn't come out on the day that it is supposed to, I assure you there is good reason for it. I am still very human. And so I do want to let you know that there may be some days that come and go, but we will always catch up and we will make sure that we finish this year God willing. Also, I made an impromptu visit on YouTube last night. I went live. So if you missed it, I wanted to let you guys know what we were chatting about. Those who are in the email list have already heard about the Heart Vault. It is our brand new shop where we are uploading PDFs of every day's study. You'll have a summary of each of the chapters, as well as the heart checks and the synopsis that comes before it, the deep dive questions, as well as the typed out prayer that we always end with each and every day. All of those are for purchase. If it's something that you're interested in. You're not missing out on anything. All of these things are free to you via these videos. And so this is just our tent making, the way that Paul would employ himself to make a living while he was doing full-time ministry. So that is what we are trying to do here. And really, it's just your way of supporting the ministry and you're getting a perk because of it. So we're not trying to drive sales here. We are just putting something out there for those who want to support the ministry, who can support the ministry, and you get a little something back because of it. We are still working around it. We're navigating through it. Holly is working on the road currently as we speak. And so we appreciate your patience if there are any issues, but we will do our best to make sure that we are able to rectify anything that comes up. So if you want to check out the Heart Vault, our brand new shop, you can head on over to heartdive.org. I do have a link in the description box or the show notes. Otherwise, today we are in Job chapters 17 through 20, where round two continues today with Bildad and Zophar. So that is friends number two and three. And it's the same song and dance from these two, these insensitive and cruel friends. And they listen to his words, but they don't listen to his heart. And so Job takes a glorious turn in chapter 19, one of my favorite parts of the Bible that starts his trek back uphill. So let's go ahead and pray and prepare our hearts for this word. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know that you have got amazing plans for our lives. The fact that we are here, we listen to the call to come here to study your word today. We know and trust that you have got a big plan and purpose for our lives. You've got a calling upon our lives to do amazing things. And so we are ready for it. We want to be able to partner with you to be able to live up to our best potential, God, the way that you have written our story from before we were formed in our mother's womb. You knew what would happen. And so now we're starting to get a glimpse as to what that is. And so I just pray that we will be open to that, to be able to hear your voice, to heed your guidance, to be able to remain steadfast in it, because we also recognize that anytime we start to do something amazing for you, the devil gets mad. And so we want to be able to resist him so that he will flee. And so I pray that you will give us the words, God, because it is your sword, your word that is going to be able to conquer him. And so we thank you that you 
you are writing this on our hearts today. May they be good soil for the seeds that are planted today. May our eyes, ears, and hearts be open to everything that you have for us. We give it all back to you as a pleasing sacrifice. Lord, let it be that good old barbecue that you smell today as we come here before you. May this time be sacred. I pray that there won't be any distractions and anything that the enemy might try to do, God, I pray that you'll stop him in his tracks. We love you so much and thank you for this time. I pray that you bless every single person here. In Jesus' name, amen. So we start off here with Job continuing his speech in chapter 17, feeling very defeated at this point. He says, my spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. So he's basically saying, I can't do this anymore. Surely there are mockers about me and my eye dwells on their provocation. Lay down a pledge for me with you. Who is there who will put up a security for me? Now, this pledge here means bail or a plea deal. So he's been using throughout these chapters some of this legal jargon, and here he's doing it again. And I just thank God that we have got somebody who paid our bail, right? Whatever we owe, Jesus laid down his life to be able to get us out and set us free. Since you have closed their hearts to understanding, therefore you will not let them triumph. So in other words, they will be held accountable. He who informs against his friends to get a share of their property, or in other words, slanders his friends and takes advantage of him being down, he's kicking them while they're down, the eyes of his children will fail. He has made me a byword of the people. So they are making fun of him and they are basically uh, making a mockery of his life. And I am one before whom men spit. My eye has grown dim from vexation and all my members are like a shadow. So he's feeling very humiliated. The upright are appalled at this and the innocent stirs himself up against the godless. Yet the righteous holds to his way and he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. And here we see a little flash of faith from Job. I love when we get these little glimmers of hope from him saying that as long as the righteous are steadfast and his hands are clean, then he will grow stronger and stronger. So he's kind of holding on to that for dear life. But you come on again, all of you, and I shall not find a wise man among you. My days are past. My plans are broken off, the desires of my heart. So in other words, he's saying, oh, the good old glory days are over. And I believe there is an aspect of humanity where we all feel that the best days are behind us. I mean, even my 13-year-old son still mourns the loss of his fifth grade year during COVID. I mean, he thinks that everyone continued on in school without him and he somehow missed out on everything. Yet I know as his mother that his best days are in front of him. And this is how the father looks at us as his children. We may think that this life is all downhill from here, especially when you get over the hill, right? You just think everything is falling down, literally. But the truth is, he's up there saying, just wait until you come home. The glory that you are walking into, it far surpasses even your best day on earth. So heart check. Where are your glory days? Are they behind you? Or do you truly believe that they are yet to come? Verse 12, they make night into day. The light, they say, is near to darkness. If I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? So even though he is thinking that death will bring a little bit of reprieve from what he is dealing with here on this earth, it's a very shallow hope. It's not a very confident one. So it seems as though he's conflicted in this hope for death because there's something in him that isn't confident. This makes me even more grateful to have a savior. I mean, he did lay down that pledge for our lives so that we can rest secure in what is to come. We have a confident hope 
hope that in not only the glory days that are ahead of us, but we can live in that glory here on earth now. So heart check, how confident is your hope? How does this help you to navigate through your life? Chapter 18, Bildad is back for more. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, how long will you hunt for words? Consider and then we will speak. So he's like, bring something valuable to the table, Job, and then we'll talk. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? So they keep on going back and forth with this name calling and these insults. And he heard Job refer to them as animals and stupid. And so he wants to know why you who tear yourself in anger. So he's like, God didn't do this, Job. You did this to yourself. Shall the earth be forsaken for you or the rock be removed out of its place? Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out and the flame of his fire does not shine. So here he begins a section where he is describing the wicked, but obviously the implication is on Job, like saying you are the wicked Job. This is why this is happening to you. The light is dark in his tent and his lamp above him is put out. His strong steps are shortened and his own schemes thrown down. So you're weak, Job, for he is cast into a net by his own feet and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel, a snare lays hold of him. So he's basically saying you are on a dangerous path. You're going to step into one of those nets that grabs your ankle, hoists you upside down. So this is why your life feels like it is turned over. A rope is hidden for him in the ground, a trap for him in the path. Terrors frighten him on every side. And this is in reference to what he said in chapter 16, and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the part of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. So this firstborn of death is actually a reference to the demon of plagues and disease. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. This another poetic description of death. This is death personified as a king or Satan. In his tent dwells that which is none of his. In his tent dwells that which is none of his. Sulfur is scattered over his habitation. So this is something that would have been done in purification rites in homes to be able to rid the home of any defilement by way of fumigation. So that is what is speaking of. Some scholars think that this is pointing to what God will do as he rains down brimstone on Sodom. But I don't think that that is the reference here. It just seems a little too far stretched. His roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. His memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. So he is contradicting Job's idea of a root being able to spring back up again. And the fact that he is saying that he is going to be remembered no more. This would have been the greatest curse that a person could have experienced back in this day is for your name not to be carried on. So they looked at this as a divine curse. And the fact that Job's children have all been killed, or at least we think they have, there is no one to carry on his family name. So it's almost as if Bildad is cruelly rubbing this in his face. They of the West are appalled at his day and horror seizes them of the East. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. So he is accusing him of being unrighteous here in the end. And the fact that he doesn't know God, which is the complete opposite of what God had spoken about Job in the beginning. So in the end, we can read this and think what an awful and cruel thing to say, that the Lord is allowing Bildad to speak. Why doesn't God just shut his pie hole? I mean, you can look at this this way, or 
You can look at it the way we're looking at it, trying to find God's heartbeat in it and saying, but Job isn't that way. So in a sense, God is actually using Job's life to disclose Job's faithfulness, not his wickedness. So now imagine that perhaps sometimes we may go through these kinds of ordeals so that God can also show others what faith looks like. And what the devil meant for evil, God's going to turn it for good. So heart check. Are you able to find and show others faith in times of criticism or insult? And oh, my favorite chapter of Job. I'm going to try to keep it together here. We're going to see a lot of Jesus in it. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? So Job is over it. These 10 times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. So he's like, y'all have proven nothing here. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. So he is that divine hunter. He did this, not me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. So he's feeling like he's in captivity. And he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory. Now we'll find out in chapter 29 that he is or was some sort of judge or councilman. He definitely had a place of prominence in the community and taken the crown from my head. So he has been dethroned in a sense. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. So he's feeling torn down and my hope has he pulled up like a tree. So he's feeling uprooted. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. So he's feeling threatened here and far from God, feeling like his enemy. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. So he's also feeling surrounded. And if you look at this, this is actually the reversal of what siege warfare would have looked like. Usually, towns would be surrounded, troops would threaten the city that is within the walls, they would then go in, uproot the people, tear down the city, dethrone the leader, and take the other people captive. And again, you can see glimpses of Jesus in the way that he was treated all throughout this section. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who know me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. So he's feeling rejected by his family. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Well, if you haven't ever heard that saying before, that is an old English idiom, which if we really think about where this came from, I don't know if that means that he didn't have any teeth and maybe he's talking about his gum being all that he has left. I don't know. I'm not sure. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Oh, you, my friend. So he's pleading with them now for the hand of God has touched me. And of course, that is untrue. It's really been Satan who has touched him. Why do you like God? Pursue me. Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Like, why is what you see not good enough for you? How much more do you want to destroy me here? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. And I just want to say, Job, they are. 
Now, of course, he knows that by now, but imagine if he knew that these words of his would be written in the best-selling book of all time. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. And this one gets me every time because I just sit here and think we shall see God. He is our Redeemer. He still lives. And when we look at what a Redeemer means in the Bible, it is the Hebrew word goel. And this will be referred to as one who typically buys back either a family member or a servant, and they will set them free. It also means vindicator, protector of family rights. So they would be the one who would go after the land that somebody may have tried to take unrightfully. Usually he was a close relative and he was almost like a strong arm. But I wrote over here, here are other things that came to my mind whenever I think of a redeemer. He is a champion of the sufferer. He's an advocate of the accused. He's our comforter. He is the avenger of blood, which is another thing that the redeemer, the goel will be in the Bible. He is our rescuer. He is our life giver. He is our guilt clearer. And when I look back on my life and all of the things that I have done that have been really dumb, really stupid, really poor choices, things I am not proud of, I just thank God for my Redeemer, that He can take those things and turn them around, that He can take back what the devil tried to steal from me and turn it for good. And I love that He says, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. Despite His suffering, despite the decrepit nature of His flesh, he will see God. He makes that declaration. And I just feel like this is one of those things that should be inscribed so deeply on our hearts that we know our Redeemer lives, that we know we will see Him one day, that He is coming back, that we are going to be face to face with Him. It is this kind of promise that we can hold on to that will get us through the hardest times in life. And I'm sparing you all of the tears and the singing that I did last year, the Crystal Lewis, My Redeemer Lives song. But maybe I'll sing the Nicole C. Mullins one. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. All right. No, I'm not going to do that. But isn't it amazing that he has such resolute faith right here? It's like he just had this moment of breakthrough. So let's do a heart check right here. What does the saying, My Redeemer Lives, mean to you? What in your life has been redeemed? Verse 28, if you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword for wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there is a judgment. So because he had that breakthrough, he is recognizing that there is going to be justice in the end. Chapter 20. Then Zophar, this is his last speech, by the way, the Namathite answered and said, therefore, my thoughts answer me because of my haste within me. I hear censor that insults me and out of my understanding, a spirit answers me. Do you not know this is from old since man was placed on earth? So he's kind of trying to claim some authority here that the exulting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless, but for a moment. So here Zophar begins his final disposition with a declaration that the life of the wicked will be cut short and the joy of the godless is fleeting. So there is some truth in this, but it isn't complete in its application here. But if we do take the implication that the joy of the wicked is fleeting, we can then apply it to the temporary pleasure of sin. So heart check, how does knowing that the joy ride of sin is fleeting help to guide your behaviors or actions? 
Though his height mount up to the heavens and his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? So he's saying, you're basically going to be flushed down the toilet, Job. Nobody's going to remember you. He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place any more behold him. His children will seek the favor of the poor and his hands will give back his wealth. So once again, in his cruel nature, he is saying children pay for their parents' evil implying that that is why Job's children ended up dying. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach. It is the venom of cobras within him. So in other words, he's saying the consequences of your evil is going to be what brings you down. It will be the end of you. He swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras. The tongue of a viper will kill him. He will not look upon the rivers, the streams flowing with honey and curds. He will give back the fruit of his toil and will not swallow it down. So in other words, he's kind of accusing him of self-sufficiency here. Like, yeah, you were all fattened up with all of these wonderful riches and you had all of the good food, but obviously that came to an end. From the profit of his trading, he will get no enjoyment for he has crushed and abandoned the poor. He has seized a house that he did not build. So he's accusing him of exploiting the poor here in order to get rich. And he is telling him, now you're paying for it, Job. Because he knew no contentment in his belly, he will not let anything in which he delights escape him. Therefore, there was nothing left after he had eaten. Therefore, his prosperity will not endure. So he's telling him, you have hit the pinnacle and now you're on your downfall. In the fullness of his sufficiency, he will be in distress. The hand of everyone in misery will come against him, which they are. To fill his belly to the full, God will send his burning anger against him and rain it upon him into his body. He will flee from an iron weapon. A bronze arrow will strike him through. It is drawn forth and comes out of his body. The glittering point comes out of his gallbladder. Terrors come upon him. Again, seeing Jesus throughout these scriptures, he's weaved all over the place. Utter darkness is laid up for his treasure. A fire not fanned will devour him. What is left in his tent will be consumed. The heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. So here we're seeing a reversal of Job's appeal for vindication to the heavens and earth. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. So Zophar ends his last speech by saying, it's too late for you, Job. You're done. This is your portion. Can you imagine having a friend like that? I just want to like flick him in the head. I feel like God wants to flick him in the head. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't act like that. But my goodness, have you ever had people like that in your life where they just say the meanest and rudest things in order to tear you down? I just don't get it. I don't get it. But thank God for Jesus, right? I'm so glad we have Jesus to get us through these kinds of things. Let's take a look at some of our deep dive questions. In what ways were you able to see God's heartbeat throughout this reading? Does it challenge or affirm your understanding of who God is? Have you ever felt isolated? How has Job influenced how you would deal with it now? Do you see any themes in today's reading that relate to today's social climate? And how does it impact your views? Do you truly believe that your Redeemer still lives? And if not, what is hindering that? So Heavenly Father, we just thank you for being our confident hope. 
We are so grateful that because you did lay down a pledge for our lives, we have security in knowing that what is to come is far greater than even the best things that this life has to offer. I pray, Lord, that we will remain steadfast in all seasons so that we can grow in our faith as you ready us for heaven. But I also pray that we will allow this life to be as glorious as you intended it. You don't intend for us to live a miserable life, and I believe that. You want us to have joy. You want us to have peace. You want us to have contentment. That doesn't mean we won't struggle through some things and we won't have trials, but we trust that you will be with us in it and that we will be able to access that joy and peace and contentment in it. So I pray that those things will inhabit our lives today, Lord. Help us to see that the best is yet to come. Thank you for helping us to see the faithfulness of Job, despite the insults and tearing down from his friends. I pray that our own faith will be disclosed in times of criticism or insult. Help us to maintain our integrity and to reflect your good nature, to have patience whenever we respond, and to be full of love in every word that we speak. We thank you, Jesus, for being our Redeemer, the one who bought us back from death, set us free from sin, and took back what the enemy stole. Thank you so much for rescuing us, Lord, for giving us life, for clearing our guilt, being our advocate, being our comforter and our champion. We know and declare that you are alive today, just as you were when you walked the earth. Your power and your might is just as evident today. So we look forward to the day that we will see you standing at the ends of the earth and we will stand face to face with you. So in the meantime, Lord, I pray that you will help us to continue to have a heavenly perspective, knowing that this life on earth is indeed temporary so that when we are tempted with the fleeting pleasure of sin, we will be able to stand up against it. Help us also to have the right view of your justice and how it is applied in today's society. But most of all, O oh God, I pray that we will carry your heart in everything that we say and do, never seeking to harm, but always pursuing love. So we do love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Heaven and salvation is a divine gift that is given to us by grace. None of us deserve it. In fact, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and every single one of us have fallen short, and then we desperately need someone to pay that price. And Jesus did it. He didn't do it because we are righteous on our own merit. He did it because He loves us and He wants to spend eternity with us. But it won't happen if we don't receive Him before we leave this earth as Lord and Savior. Hell is a very real thing and there is no second chance after we take our last breath here. So I want to be able to give someone the opportunity today who is saying, I'm ready. I've never given my life to Christ. I don't know where I'm going to end up after I die but I don't wanna live another day without knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt where I am going to end up. I see now that this is real and I want to believe. So if that is you, we're gonna say a prayer and I'm gonna put the words on the screen so that you can say them audibly with your mouth because the Bible says that when you believe and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that he died and rose again, then you will be saved. So we're gonna say this prayer together. Believe it in your heart, speak it with your mouth, and know that this is indeed the day of your salvation. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I believe that you came, you died, and you rose again. I confess my sins to you today, and I turn from them, and I now live my life for you. 
I know that I am forgiven of all my sins. So I receive you now as Lord and Savior, and I belong to you, Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.